Testing, one, two. Let's uh, pray together, commit our times to the Lord. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, it's uh, good to be together to worship you. Father, it's good to be together to be encouraged by what others are doing around the world for your name's sake. Father, it's good to be together to share communion together and reflect on the the beauties of, of Christ and his salvation. And Father, it's good to be together to come under the, the sound of your word. We pray this morning that as we look at your word afresh that you will shape our hearts. You will do, do a work deep within our souls uh, so that we can worship you. We pray these things in the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen. As you're aware, we're continuing our journey through the book of First Peter. We've taken a little bit of a detour. Uh, we would normally be doing the start of chapter 3 if we were doing it consecutively, but we're just going to jump forward a little bit uh, and don't be concerned. Uh, we'll go back to chapter 3, that start of chapter 3, you know, that wonderful few verses on submission. Uh, we will get back there uh, and we'll do that on the 1st of October. And it's been an interesting week as I've been preparing for uh, this particular section of Scripture. You know, sometimes when you are spending hours in the study looking through uh, God's Word, sometimes you, you get smacked between the eyes. I don't know if you've experienced that yourselves as you read God's word and you get confronted with the truth or with a principle or with a proposition that just, you just need to do something with it. It's the conviction of the spirit that does that in the heart, right? The spirit grabs God's word and says, you've just got to do something about this. That's been my experience as I've prepared this week. We were going to look at a, a lot longer section, but I've reduced it to 1 Peter 3, 8 to 12. Because as I've driven into this particular context and thought through the principles which Peter is starting to summarize for us in this letter, they've deeply impacted my own heart, and I want to share that with you today. I want to remind you that This letter that we've been reading through, and I hope and trust and pray that you've been grabbing hold of your bookmarks and trying to read 1 Peter in in a sitting and and just seeing what the theme and flow of the book is. I trust you've been doing that. And as you do, you will find that the the universal relevance of this letter is that, that Peter is presenting something deep for us. He's presenting the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ, this precious gospel which we celebrated this morning around communion, the precious gospel which we celebrated in song, is the foundational principle by which we as Christians should live our lives. 
The gospel is the foundational principle. The gospel is the thing that shapes your attitudes and your characteristics towards one another and towards others. The gospel should shape you as you live within the larger context of what we're all dealing with in an unbelieving society. It's not our ability to argue against a certain case. It's not our ability to, to theorize about the way things should be. What should be shaping us is the gospel and the presentation of that to others. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's what it means to be someone who is standing fast in the true grace of God. Remember the the theme of Peter. What is the theme of 1 Peter? If I was asked that, where would you go to find the theme of 1 Peter? The theme of 1 Peter is in chapter 5, verse 12. It's at the end of the letter where he states his purpose clearly. I've briefly written to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Now stand firm in it or stand fast in it. To stand fast in the grace of God is to stand fast in the gospel. To stand fast in the gospel is to let it to impact every area of your life. As we've been meditating and thinking about First Peter, we understand that the situation in this far eastern part of the Roman Empire in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. We understand that things were starting to heat up. It's like having a Bunsen burner on your backside, right? The heat eventually is going to get to you. And as the Christians here starting to live out their faith in a, in, a, in a society that was dominated by the Roman culture, things were starting to heat up. Peter, the writer of the letter, was already experiencing this when he was writing from Rome. These folks had yet to experience it. They were starting to get some of the fringe things happening in their society. They were starting to be a little bit alienated. Uh, their relationships were being threatened from a socio-economic perspective. They were finding it difficult to work because if you weren't part of a certain guild or weren't part of a certain trade union that worshipped a certain Roman deity, then it was difficult to make a living. So things we're starting to get a little bit testy for these believers. And this is reflected throughout the letters you've read it. I, I, I hope you've picked it up. You know, chapter 1, verse 6 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And this language of trial occurs a couple of times here, and it, it occurs with the, the other word, suffering. Suffering and trials go hand in hand through this book, and these are some of the things that, that Peter is 
exhorting and encouraging them through. He says, even though you're going to face these trials, even though you're going to face these sufferings, let the gospel be centre. You see, one of his primary exhortations as you start reading through this book and you'll see that these believers need to be transformed by the understanding of their own self-identity. Their identity is now in Christ. And they're living in 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 a society where the world is hostile to the basic principles of the gospel. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Sounds very familiar. I want to just make this point. Just realize any antagonism that you may feel or experience against you personally, whether it's based on your biblical and ethical beliefs, is not an assault on you personally. It's an assault on the gospel. It's an assault on what you believe about Christ. It's an assault on the fact that you say Christ is King and He is Lord and He reigns and He is all-sufficient and His Word is all-sufficient. When there's antagonism against what you believe, it's not an assault on you, it's an assault on the truth of God's Word. It's an assault on God Himself. Now we can take courage in that, but we also can take great comfort in that as well. You see, Peter acknowledges that, that as elect exiles, they're estranged from the culture. They're considered exiles and sojourners. And he continually identifies uh, their rejection by society as, a, as totally consistent because they're following Christ. Just look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2.19 says this, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to do this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. When we are followers of Christ, when we are constrained and compelled by the gospel, these verses clearly state we will suffer. And the example of Christ's suffering and the, and the way he suffered is a pattern for us to follow. Peter exhorts us here in this verse to, to live a godly life, to accept the consequence of suffering and to continue to trust God. You know, another thing that you notice as you read through Peter is that clearly the way they followed Christ was visible to the society around about them. 
Because if it was not visible, then there would be no trials. If it wasn't visible, there'd be no suffering for the cause of Christ. So there is a a correlation between uh, the impact of their belief on what they were doing in society. And I really think, as I've been just dwelling on this this week, that this letter really forces forces me, forces us to examine our acceptance of society's norms and to be willing to be a sufferer for Christ and to be alienated and to be treated as a visiting foreigner in our own culture because that's what will occur when the gospel shapes our lives. The gospel makes a difference, folks. The gospel makes a difference the way you think, the way you act, the way you behave. As Christians, we're called to suffer persecution for the faith and we're also called to deny, be part of uh, denying ourselves for the sake of the cross. Remember the verses in Mark where Jesus turned to his disciples and said, those who would be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And I think Peter addresses this issue in this letter of what denial looks like. What does it mean to deny? Let me give you a couple of examples here. See, isn't the temptation to lie, to tell an untruth, isn't that just often an attempt to save face rather than face the consequences of truth? So that means you're denying the truth and I'm going to lie just to save face because I don't have to follow the truth. That's one example. Perhaps another example, say if you go and cheat on an exam. What's causing you to cheat on that exam? Well, perhaps it's an unwillingness to suffer the loss of the reputation that you have or other consequences that might bring failure. The process of denial. It's interesting because Peter also addresses this, and we'll, we'll, we'll come to it in the next few weeks in, in chapter 4, where he talks about the fact that Christ suffered in the flesh, so arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. See, the pain and suffering that self-denial brings, because that's what this letter talks about. It talks about suffering, it talks about self-denial, it talks about pain of all those things. The pain and suffering that these things bring is a godly suffering. And it's better than yielding to sin. That's what he tells us here. So, 
he just makes this appeal and, and he continues to make this appeal. As followers of Christ, be shaped by the gospel. Let the new birth be your guide. Let the fact that you have an inheritance, let the fact that you have a living hope, let the fact that you are to set your hope on the day when Christ will return, let the fact that you've been called to be holy, let the fact that you have been ransomed, let the fact that you are to love one another earnestly, let the fact that you are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a royal generation, that the fact that you are to conduct yourselves as Gentiles in an honourable way towards others, to be subject to the authorities God has placed upon you, whether human institutions or whether an employee-employer relationship or even whether the relationship inside your marriage. Let those things be centred on the gospel. So the question is, how do we do that? It's an exhausting type list, isn't it? No wonder he says at the end of the letter, you've got to rest on the grace of God. You've got to stand firm in it. So how do we do this? What are the characteristics and attitudes that we should possess to live in such a way? At the heart of it, I think, he's driving us, how do you love your enemies? How do you love your enemies? And that's what we'll start to look at today. So if you turn with me to chapter 3, and we'll just briefly read these verses, uh, verse 8 through 12. Stand up and we'll read them together. It's always good to stand and read God's Word together, so let's do that. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may attain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Take a seat. We come to a mini summary here in First Peter, and we, that's indicated by the word "finally." He's starting to make a summation. He's starting to summarise his thoughts to this point in time, and his thoughts really go back to two eleven, where he starts saying, "As a." follower of Christ, as someone who is gospel-centered, as someone who is acknowledging you are a new person in Christ, you are a benefit of the new birth, you're going to live as sojourners and exiles, you need to abstain from the passions of the flesh, and you need to conduct yourselves among the Gentiles in an honorable way. That's where this conversation started 
when he used this little term, finally. Shabu, last week, took us through these things and he said, okay, you need to be subject to the the Lord. That's the thing that centers your whole submission. You firstly got to be subject to the Lord and then the other submission aspects will flow down. If you get your relationship with God on level, if you're subject to him, then the other submission aspects, I'd say it won't be easy, <laughs> but they will fall in line. If you have an issue with submission, folks, then check your submission to the Lord. Because that's what drives everything. That's what drives everything. So we have this, and, and now he, he says to live in an honorable way, another way of summarizing it, he starts looking at attitudes, both internal attitudes and external attitudes. I'll break it up into those two points, as verse 8 and 9 does of chapter 3. I think the internal attitudes and characteristics he looks at is amongst believers. The list that's given to us here in verse 8, there's five qualities. And I think these are healthy marks of a healthy church. And I think verse 9 is external, our behaviours towards those outside the community of faith. So let's start looking at these, these characteristics. He says, finally, all of you. So he's now including the whole believing community of, of these areas in, in Asia. All of you. I want you to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The NET puts it really nicely. Finally, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, affectionate, compassionate, and humble. You see, this is a, a technique that, as a writer, he has used. And he, he really, what you've got here is you've got two sets of the same thing and one main principle. If you listed out those five things, you'd have at the top, you'd have unity of mind, you'd have sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. If you look at the first and the last, they're the same thing, Correct? Uh, unity of mind and a humble mind. They're similar attributes. If you look at the next one, uh, sympathy, and the second to last one, a tender heart or, or compassionate. They, in essence, are the same. So you have the central thought plugged in there, which is brotherly love. And this goes with 1 Peter because he has already commanded this previously. He commanded this in 1 Peter 1.22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Peter has grabbed previous discussions in this letter and he's, he's reinforcing it here. He's basically saying the same thing. Your character and your attitude internally really matters. 
This is a thing that displays to the world around about you that you guys are followers of Christ. And the essence and the center of that is brotherly love. And the brotherly love is displayed by having a united mind and a, and a humble mind, and it's displayed by having sympathy and compassion. Who finds these things easy? I won't get a show of hands. Because, let's face it, everyone here at some point in time has lived inside a family, right? You've all lived inside a family. Just tell me a little bit about your experience uh, inside your family. Has there always been unity of uh, mind? Has there always been humbleness of mind? Has there always been compassion and sympathy? Have you always put others first? Has there always been brotherly and sisterly love? Sibling love? We understand these issues are difficult, right? Because we've all had experiences in our background where these things are difficult. But you know what? Inside the church, these things are essential. And these things are only, um, only operational because the Spirit of God dwells within you. The Spirit's within you, shaping you in these areas. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, patience, self-control. And that's what Peter is saying. This is almost like Peter's results of the fruit of the Spirit, if you like. Inside your church community, folks, these things must be paramount because these things show that you are regenerated, you have a new birth, and that you're living for Christ. You know, to be harmonious is, is to be of one mind, being united of one spirit. How do you get one mind and united one spirit, folks? You go back to the foot of the cross. Realize where you've come from. How do you show sympathy and compassion or a tender heart and understanding? You go back to the foot of the cross. You repent of the facts that you are self-absorbent, self-centered and ask the Lord to do a work in your heart to show compassion and sympathy. How do you display brotherly and sisterly love? By encouraging one another at the foot of the cross. By removing your agendas and focusing on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the fact that he has granted you a new birth and an inheritance. That's a living hope. That shapes us. That shapes us. So that's the internal 
Now the external, verse 9, I think, changes. And he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to do this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Two actions here. Don't repay evil for evil, but bless. Why are you to bless? Because you are called to do so. This is not the first time we've heard this word calling in First Peter. I'd encourage you this week to go and just read through First Peter and circle every time you see the word calling. You see, the majority of the times it's relates, it relates to your salvation. Here it relates to your attitude, your ongoing ability to interact in a, in a nation, in a world, in a society that hates you because of your faith. What does he mean by blessing? How do I bless somebody? Is it some papal authority? <laughs> Is it, uh, can I... How, how can I bless somebody in this environment? He's talking here. I'm not repaying evil for evil. I'm not reviling for reviling. You know, that means um, reviling means to, to curse or slander. I'm not slandering somebody. But on the contrary, I'm blessing. So what does it mean to bless? We're called to it. And there's a result. If I had to bless somebody, there's some form of inheritance available to me because of it. But what does it mean to bless? I'm going to lock down on this a little bit because I think this is an important thing. So I think we've probably lost the importance of this in our society, right? We often say, oh, well, bless you. What does that mean? I think here, Peter means that believers are to ask God to show favour and grace upon those who are their enemies. Peter means that as a believer, you are to seek God to show favour and grace on those enemies of yours, of those people you do, you detest, on those people that are trying to injure you, on those people who are trying to just slander and revile you. And yet the Word of God tells me I've got to turn around and I've got to say, bless you see this type of response only comes from a a deep regenerated heart for us to 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 turn the other cheek to to love our enemies to ask to even confer god's blessing upon someone you totally disagree with it's a sign of a regenerated heart it's a sign of a a deep held belief that Christ 
is in control. That Christ is completely just. That Christ will, on one day, right the wrongs. And that goes back to the start of 1 Peter when he talks about set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. That's appropriating that principle, which he's already talked about. Maybe a, this is a difficult thing. If you've been reviled and you've been slandered, when do you stop and pray for your enemy? That would be blessing them. You stop, you consider, you pray, and you ask for God's favor. You ask that God will regenerate that person. You ask that God will display himself to that person. You ask that God will save that person. That's gospel-centered, folks. And that's hard. That's tough stuff. And that can only be done through the grace of God in your own heart. This is the grace of God. Stand firm in it. The theme of the, of the letter. Peter knows this is not easy, so he goes to an example. He goes to Psalm 34. And he quotes about four verses out of Psalm 34 and verse 10, 11, and 12 of our text. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears are upon open to his prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Psalm 34, now let's flick back to Psalm 34. We're going to send a little bit of work in here. We get the context of Psalm 34. And so why did Peter use this as an encouragement, as an example the psalm's written by David. Actually, go further back. Go, to, go to back to, to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 21. Shall read you a small account there just to help you with the context of the Old Testament of why David wrote this psalm. So 1 Samuel 21. I'll pick it up at um, verse 10. Quite an interesting part of David's life. He's... He's uh, being suppressed and oppressed by his enemies all around. And uh, he does something kind of unusual. He's just uh, received some bread from Ahimelech, the priest, for him and his men. And then in verse 10, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did not they sing to one another of him as he dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Just some context for you. David, or the nation of Israel, was at war with the Philistines. Had been for centuries. Remember? Goliath, Philistine. Had his head cut off by David. Now David's back in the land of Gath, which is part of the Philistine Empire. And he's taking solace with a, a fellow by the name of Ashes. And, and, and his men said, hey, beware, this is David. This is who they've sung about. This is the one that they say has slaughtered 10,000s. 
And David took these words to heart, verse 12, and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? I love that. (laughs) Do I lack madmen? That you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Abdullah. So this is, the, this is the scene of what happened in David's life. He, he feigned madness to get out of a sticky situation. He was in the, the, the lap of his enemies and he wrote this wonderful psalm in Psalm 34. The psalm is a song of praise. As you read through it, it's an incredible song of praise. It's a song of praise based on the fact that The Lord was faithful and his salvation came to David in dire circumstances. The first three verses, you see that, don't you? It's just a a worship. You see, David's worship is continuous, it's contagious, and it's corporate. In In the first three verses, I will bless the Lord at all times. My soul makes haste to the Lord. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. It's continuous, contagious, and corporate. That's his worship as he considers what has gone on before him and uh, before this, this king of Gath. Or Gath. And he continues. And then he, he witnesses to what God has done. If you break this, this particular psalm is broken up into uh, four, four verses or four stanzas. And it's also really interesting too. This is one of the uh, one of the few acrostic psalms in the Old Testament. What do I mean by an acrostic? Every every um, verse starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, much like Psalm 119. If you look at Psalm 119, you see it actually labelled. Here's 22 verses. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Each verse starts with a letter. Why? So it's easy for people to remember. That's why. Remember the book of the Psalms, they are worship. These are, these are ancient worship songs for temple worship. So uh, he magnifies, he worships, then he gives witness to what is done. God has delivered me, God has delighted me, verse 5. God has defended me, verse 6 and 7. Defended him out of his troubles and by the angel of the Lord. And then we have some of David's wisdom. Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because of my experience, because of my deliverance, realize that the Lord is good. He also uses, Peter uses this in 1 Peter chapter uh, 2. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He then encourages us to tremble before the Lord, verse 9, to turn to the Lord, verse 10, to turn from evil, verses 11 through 14, and to turn to good. And this is where the context of 1 Peter starts coming in. Because from verse 12 through 16 is an exact quote from the psalm. Exact, word for word. The only thing that changes is the imperatives. And the only thing that, 
The imperative doesn't change in word, it just changes in tense. And David just turns and he, he says, okay, we have this wonderful wisdom of David, now the David's wonderment. He says, the Lord sees, verse 15. The Lord hears, verse 15 through 17. The Lord rescues, 17 through 20. The Lord judges, and finally, the Lord redeems. Aren't they wonderful things to consider? And Peter uses this. He uses this in the context of an instruction about how we are to behave towards outsiders. Let's get back to the text. And he said, You are called to be a blessing. David's example was that he was a he was a blessing in this way. He understood that firstly vengeance was the Lord's and that he was to pursue righteousness. I would submit to you vengeance is the Lord's we are to pursue the gospel on all circumstances. You see, we have a responsibility to live in this society as men or women who are subject to the authorities because first and foremost, we're subject to Christ. We're to keep our conduct among society honourable. Why? To follow the example of Christ. You know, who was reviled. 1 Peter 2, 22, He committed no sin, neither deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Do we continue to do that or do we take the burden on our own backs? You see, by doing so, you're submitting to the sovereignty of the Lord of the universe. You realize that he, one day, will judge justly. See, these characters... Ristics and attitudes we should possess internally, that of unity, that of brotherly love, that of sympathy and compassion, should fuel and encourage us to behave in a way externally that doesn't repay evil for evil, but blesses those who persecute us. This is only something God can do in our hearts, folks. This is only something that the Spirit of God can shape and change us to be like. My prayer for you today is that 
you take that seriously. You go before his throne of grace and say, just use me, Lord. Use me to be gospel-centered this week. As I, as I have to consider all these things about society that's destroying family, destroying marriage, destroying children, destroying whatever it might be, our response as followers of Christ is to be gospel-centered. To proclaim the wonders, the transforming power of the gospel of Christ. That's the charge. And just as a, a side note, as I started this portion, I talked about the fact that progressively this, these trials and sufferings were going upon this region. I want to read something from you, from history that uh, was noted in AD 111, AD 111. It's 40 years after this letter was written. And it's noted by somebody by name, and you don't laugh at this name, Pliny the Younger. Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y, the Younger. Now, who knows who Pliny the Younger is? Ah, oh, no historians amongst us. There we go. Pliny the Younger. He was a, uh, uh, not an emperor, but he, he was looking after this region by 111. And he wrote, he wrote to his emperor, Tacius. He reported on what was happening in the region. He said this, Christianity has spread, not only in the cities, but in the villages and rural districts as well. Among the Christians were a number of prominent Roman citizens and many of Bithynia's pagan temples were almost deserted. A lesson from history. Suffering, persecution, spreads the gospel. Pliny the Younger attested to it in his region 40 years after the fact that this was written when, when Peter said to these people, realize this stuff is coming, but focus on Christ, focus on the gospel, focus on the new birth, set your hope fully on the grace that's been brought to you in Christ Jesus. Folks, it's the same to us today. Set your hope fully on the grace that has been brought to us and proclaim it. Invite the music team up. Thanks.